0: Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Birth Launch podcast. Today is one of the most requested topics that I have ever gotten in my life. And also one of the topics I'm super passionate about. So this is a conversation I have literally dreamed of. Please welcome Kristen Pascucci, who is the founder of Birth Monopoly. Kristen, welcome. Hi, hey, how's it how's going? going? It is going so well. I'm like on cloud nine talking to you actually because today we're diving into obstetrical violence. And I think that you and I both are able to talk about this very heavy and dark and really kind of fear-provoking conversation in a way that is straightforward. So we don't like bullshit people, but also we don't scare you. We just give you the facts. And we say like, this is... Something that is happening. And if you're going to have your baby in hospital, then you need to know about these things so that you know how to prepare Mm -hmm. because this is something you're going to face. Right. But, and I think a lot of people try and take birth trauma and use it almost, they weaponize it almost. And they say, like, well, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to end up with birth trauma. And birth trauma comes from, oh my gosh, so many places. And that's something I have learned from you. And so, I think that for me is where I would like to start the conversation. In my opinion, birth trauma is really kind of defined by the person who holds that trauma, right? Like anything can really be birth trauma. But when we're talking about birth trauma in kind of a clinical sense or a very kind of like, you know, specific birth trauma, maybe a legal sense even, what is the definition that we typically use?
1: Oh, for birth trauma? Yeah, I don't know that I typically use a definition because I go with, I, I really believe in, you know, sort of that principle you mentioned that it's self-defined. Um, I think that trauma itself is usually defined as something that overwhelms your system. Like it's mm-hmm. something that it's actually a response and not an event. So the trauma is what happens inside you. And it also is why, I'm eating blueberries while I'm talking to you. It also is why it's different for everybody. Something that's traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you. Or vice versa it also has to do with cumulative experiences like and i think that's super important because like for example people who have a history of sexual trauma are much more likely to have to have what they define as birth trauma and that's a that's a like large proportion of people like there's there's a lot of overlap between sexual trauma and birth trauma, obviously, but that's like a big part of the population. It's not, these aren't like small numbers. So I forgot what your question was, but that is my answer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, you answered it. That's, I mean, yeah. Okay. So so much of that comes from obstetrical violence. Talk to us about that. So in a legal kind of sense or a clinical sense, what are we talking about when it comes to obstetrical violence?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say birth trauma is not a hundred percent preventable, right? Yeah. Like exactly. birth trauma can come from a precipitous birth. Mm-hmm. Like it just happened fast. Your body spit the baby out. You did not have enough time to like acclimate to what was happening. I kind of had this just a little bit with my, with my son, with my, the only baby I've ever had, where it was like a fairly fast birth for a first time mom. And, um, it was overwhelming. It was just like, oh my God, I haven't even gotten used to like this sensation before this next sensation is happening, you know? Yeah. And then like the next thing, you know, you just have a baby and it's like, holy shit. What Am I happened? allowed to swear? Yeah, of course. Okay. So it's just like a really quick transition. So that's just one thing. But then Obstetrical there's- physical violence. <laughs> yes. Obstetric violence. Sorry. It's, you know, it's not an easy thing to talk about, honestly. It's not at it's all. It's a traumatizing subject. Yeah. I, this is- Part of how I deal with it is engaging my senses, which means I'm snacking while we're talking.
0: So it I think, yeah, I think personally, I'm able to talk about this topic so freely because I don't have my own birth story yet. Uh-huh. So other than witnessing birth trauma, which is very totally different, has its traumas. I, I have birth trauma, but it's on a witness. Perspective,
1: a secondary trauma, yeah,
0: definitely. It is different than I just will never know it until I have my own babies. If I were to experience birth trauma, right? And so I do believe that that yeah. is part of the reason I'm able to hold these this space so, yeah, easily.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because your trauma isn't like pinging up against my trauma,
0: definitely.
1: Yeah. Now I do want to make one little point though, which is that physiologically the body is really affected by trauma pretty much no matter where the trauma comes from Mm -hmm. so whether like I was in a war zone or you know was manhandled by a physician during birth or you know experienced sexual assault or whatever your body like your body responds to trauma in the same way does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah and some of those symptoms might be things like and I'm sort of overlapping like general trauma and PTSD symptoms, because obviously some of this can go to the extreme of being like actual PTSD. So some of those things would be probably the first thing would be just repeating the event over and over in your head, like not being able to stop thinking about it. That's One of the most common things that I hear, having nightmares or dreams about it, where almost like you're trying to change the ending of what happened, or you're re-experiencing the emotions, often like helplessness, hopelessness, grief, fear. I think invasive thoughts throughout the day is another one, not necessarily about the actual birth, but just almost like your brain is just kind of not able to keep out Um, The negative stuff, or not the negative stuff, but like specific things that you're afraid of, for example, dropping my baby, or something really weird, like dropping my baby and then accidentally running over him with my car. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. is really unrealistic. It's probably not going to happen, but your brain almost can't identify that as irrational, and it's just like just keeps running. Definitely avoiding certain triggers, pregnancy announcements or birth announcements. You might find that you have a different reaction now. Jealousy can be mm-hmm. one of those things. Like mm-hmm. wow. It, it almost hurts to see someone having a positive experience. And why couldn't I have had that? What else? I'm trying to think. There was one other that I was just thinking of that was just super common. Oh, well, when it comes to avoiding is like, anything can be a trigger, a person, a place. So I don't know how many people I have said to me, you know, I now take a different route to the grocery store or to work or to whatever. So I don't have to drive by the hospital or I don't have to be near the hospital where that trauma happened for me. So, and definitely avoiding care from your care provider, not ever going back to your care provider or putting off appointments or yeah, just avoiding things that might be triggers. Sometimes your baby can be a trigger.
0: I was just about to say, that's exactly what my mind went to is recognize, you know, even if your baby sometimes triggers you, right? Yeah, it's so
1: tough.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, so tough, but it's also not your fault and there's support out there. So you have resources, but you've got to be able to tell somebody and you're really the only one that can recognize that, right? You're the one who kind of knows the thoughts in your head when you see your baby. So recognize that. Yeah, that's interesting to hear people have different, take different routes to different places in their, in their life. That avoidance is really big and disruptive to your life. And I think that disruptive pieces is is the big defining factor of kind of birth trauma versus like navigating kind of through your regular life. When you are transitioning to parenthood, you have some thoughts that are just like, wow, but your life Mm -hmm. has, has been Really turned upside down. It's when you're not able, and you said this, like to decipher which ones are like realistic that you should pay attention to and which ones are kind of unrealistic and, and might be a problem. It's when they start to disrupt your life, right? And they start to like kind of really impede things that you should probably be seeking some support out there. A lot of people will report feeling like actual. Heaviness in their stomach, or knots in their stomach, shortness of breath. They'll sweat, oh, yeah. crying uncontrollably. Sometimes they they have the, the need to like literally get up and physically move out of the space that you were talking about, or yeah, about Birth death. totally. So, you know that that physical feeling of nausea, even that yeah, physical response of either being asked about your birth story, something triggering you about your birth story, or you sharing your birth story expect it it's very normal you're certainly not alone in that
1: i just want to highlight or emphasize what you just said which is that it's normal i think one of the big barriers to people healing is feeling guilty and Mm -hmm. feeling alone yeah and i so I, i just want to like emphasize that these reactions are normal in the face of a traumatic situation it's, it's a healthy response to have a trauma response, in fact, when there's a traumatic event or, you know, some, some kind of threat. And so to not feel ashamed about it, to know that, like, there are lots and lots of other people who have experienced that same thing or something similar and are experiencing it right now. And there's nothing wrong with you having that, having that reaction. It's a human reaction.
0: <laughs> I was just about to say, it's actually really expected. We'd be more concerned if you were feeling triggered and not having those things. you be like, what's what's going on here? Why aren't they having a bodily response to these things? So it's, it's expected. That's why I wanted to talk about it actually is so that you can go into this kind of prepared. And when you have these, feelings emotionally or physically that you you don't feel like something's wrong in the sense of like you're in danger you know that something is wrong like you've been triggered and you need some support but you don't feel like your life is in danger so that you can stay in control and and take the necessary steps okay so obstetrical violence i always think about this as any sort of power play by a medical professional in any any Capacity, your midwife, your obstetrician, your nurse, anyone in there, the anesthesiologist, it doesn't matter. They are in a position of authority. And anything that is a power play that is meant to throw the room off kilter and to play that dynamic of them being in charge is obstetrical violence. And this could be verbally. It could be physically. It could be emotionally. It could be fear-based driven. It could be, they totally just straight up lie to you. There are just so many examples examples of obstetrical violence that I feel like some are intentional and I feel like the mass majority is just culture and it's literally just what our doctors are taught and that is the scariest part so when we think about obstetrical violence what's the true definition that we think about and then also you've done years of research on this I'd love to know what the like most mind-blowing couple things that you found throughout your journey that made you be like, oh my word, what is this? What's happening?
1: Okay. There's a lot there. I think that, so there, there isn't like, there isn't one definition of obstetric violence right now. It has been defined in law in certain South and Central American countries. Excuse me. I know Venezuela uses the word appropriation of the body, which I think is a really a really good one. So it's, so part of the definition is that it is appropriation of the birthing person's body by medical personnel, which, you know, is kind of what you said, which is where someone else is in charge of your body. Someone else is making decisions about your body. Someone else is deciding what's quote unquote best for you and just acting on that. So they're the decision maker. So that, so that might have to do more with sort of a, a physical act, but I agree with you that I think the majority of it is is not outright physical violence. It is more a coercion, manipulation, pressure, just an environment that's set up to create a certain outcome, or I I shouldn't say outcome, to create a certain process, you know, regardless of who's going through the process. I, I like to use the word subordination. It's where the birthing person is subordinated to literally anything. Whether that's an individual or a system or a or a whatever, where they are not seen or respected or upheld as the the decision maker and the authority in their own birth over their own body over their own baby. So that's so that's like part of my working definition. And of course it can show up in all kinds of ways from you know just disrespectful treatment, you know, somebody being literally just a nurse being snotty <laughs> or refusing to answer questions or being passive-aggressive or sarcastic or, you know, anything like that, all the way up to like full-blown physical violence, you know, getting a court order to make someone have a C-section that they don't want to have and, you know, don't, don't believe they need. Yeah, so... It's, there's quite a spectrum. I don't know if you've seen the, the pyramid that I made. I really, I think that's a really helpful visual because it kind of starts at the lowest levels of just, you know, one of the lowest kind of most benign levels is making jokes about a birth plan like oh you know oh someone who has a birth plan is high maintenance or that's a guaranteed c-section or that's a ticket to the operating room if you have a birth plan and it being said in a joking way like oh my goodness no we're just kidding around this doesn't mean anything but underlying that is a belief and an attitude And yes, it does translate into how you're cared for and treated. And then as you go up that pyramid, you know, things get like a little more serious, a little bit more confrontational up until you have full-blown, full-blown violence. But it's those lower levels that normalize the attitudes and the actions that make up those higher levels of more serious and more physical acts against birthing people.
0: Okay, you just said full blown violence. I think a lot of people imagine doctors slamming your body down on the bed, and it can look like that, but a lot of times it doesn't, right? Like, there are no room.
1: I'll tell Um, you, yeah, I think one of the most common ones that I hear of is vaginal exams. Exactly. Yeah. So there's this kind of like gray line, right? It's kind of blurry. Maybe you've said yes to a vaginal exam. Yep. And they start doing it and you're like, holy shit, this is so much more painful than I realized. Stop, I don't want you to, oh my goodness, you know, whatever, and the person just doesn't stop. Maybe it's, yeah, I mean, maybe it's five more seconds. You know, maybe it's not that much, maybe it's just a little bit, still a violation. And I think vaginal exams are really a good example because it's easy for people to understand. And it also, for me, relates like it's so easy to see how that could be a sexual assault feeling for someone but like starting from the very you know kind of like the setup or the environment around it of like the expectation that like obviously we're going to give you multiple vaginal exams or pelvic exams yeah we're going to check you every hour or every two hours or you know whatever like that's just um the fact like that that's it set up, yeah, that it's set up, it's set up as an expectation that you're going to like open your legs for a person to invade your body with their, with a body part, like without, without that being an informed consent discussion about why we might want to do this and what the potential benefits might be from doing it and the risks of doing it. Because yeah, there are both potential benefits and risks to doing it. It is not, it's not meaningless. It's not, You know, it's not nothing. So, and then just pile on somebody who's got, who's coming in with sexual trauma. That's a possibility for a totally different response. If you feel pressured or coerced or pushed into letting someone put their fingers in you when you've, you know, maybe had some past with something like that. So anyway, I think that's a really, I think that's a really common one where it can be really benign, just setting people up with the expectation that this is what's going to happen. They don't know that they have a choice. Everyone might be very friendly to them, very kind, very whatever, but they're never actually given a choice about it happening. And some of those people are probably totally fine with it and would be like, yeah, I don't care. I would have said yes anyway. But you don't just get to assume that as a provider and then you know there are the more kind of horrifying stories where people are literally saying like no stop get your hands out of me and the provider either continues or you know starts even without asking at all I've heard of that with sleeping patients um, with people who are just like really deep in labor you know maybe they're you know leaning over the side of the bed or something and they don't even realize what's happening behind them. Yeah. It's, it's non-consensual invasion of your vagina. It's a, it's a thing. And those, those stories are really disturbing to me because they sound so much like sexual assault. I can relate to that so much. I didn't have a forced vaginal exam, but I, I can totally imagine what that's like having my own sexual assault history, you know, Mm -hmm. and this just seems like one of the really common, common things that I hear about and that people really normalize and blow off and act like, well, it's just part of having a baby. It's just, you know, it's part of medical care, but I think the implications are a lot deeper than that.
0: So I want to back up to the conversation where your providers like sharing all the benefits and the risk, no matter what someone should say should be the provider in this conversation, but if they don't do it nurses out there you have a responsibility to say this as a patient advocate, someone in the room needs to say, you can say yes or no to this. Once you have all this information, right? This is what our suggestion is. We are suggesting this. Don't get that wrong. Like, here's what we think that you should do. However, here are the benefits. Here are the risks. Here are the alternatives that you have. You are free to say yes or no to whatever it is. Somebody in the room has to say it. And I think that's a big role that doulas play. It's just really important. If you don't have a doula, your partner can play it too. You can kind of like, quote unquote, train them before the birth and say like, remind them, have conversations about like their role in the birth room. And this is a great one. Okay, so on a more, more kind of level towards the top of that pyramid, we're talking about something like hospitals getting paperwork from a judge saying that someone has to have a C-section. Talk us through that.
1: Well, so that's been pretty well-documented. So National Advocates for Pregnant Women have done a lot of work around that, around like forced C-sections, for example. There are reports out there, you know, journal articles about it. It's it's a well-documented phenomenon. The majority of the people this happens to are people of color. And I don't, well, don't quote me on this. Let me, let me reword what I was about to say. I'll just say like a a good sized chunk of the forced procedures were retrospectively bad calls medically, which I think is important.
0: So not only did this disproportionately impact people of color, but they were also almost all of them were unnecessary.
1: I'm not going to say all because I can't remember the proportion. I I want to say it was either one-third or two-thirds, but <laughs> so that's thing. like a very general number. Yeah. But yeah, a not insignificant number of them were definitely found to be, you know, basically errors, like medical errors.
0: Kind of negligent, huh? Yeah. I mean, just feels like negligence. Okay, so... Yikes. That's, that's absolutely incredible. Okay. Let's talk about the violence that comes from a provider, either a nurse or a, a doctor or a midwife that pulls the card of, well, I've been a nurse for 30 years, or I've been doing obstetrics for 42 years. You should just trust me. Yeah. That's very yeah. sly. It doesn't feel like obstetrical violence, but it is absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. There are a lot of really subtle ways that it shows up And what you just described is someone saying, you're not the expert, I'm the expert. That really firmly takes you out of the center of the decision making and makes them the decision maker, or at least someone who has a lot of influence over that decision, as as if they have a right to the decision, as opposed to a responsibility to advise you, support you, you know, care for you. I think that's I think that's really important. And I, and there's there's a power dynamic involved here too. A couple minutes ago when we were talking about, you know, someone saying you have a choice to say yes or no to this thing. I can see how someone who doesn't who isn't really familiar with the internal workings of a hospital or an L&D room might be like, "Huh, well, that's weird. Like why would you need that?" and that just seems so obvious. Like of course you know you can say no, right? Um, that perspective doesn't take into account the power dynamics that are happening there. There's already this assumption that the physician or, you know, other personnel in the room are, are experts Mm -hmm. in what's going on. And the patient is sort of the receiver of the expertise and is meant to follow the advice and decisions of the experts in the room. Like this is already set up. We know this. I mean, it's been researched. People do what their doctors tell them to do. <laughs> that's just how it goes. Mm. So for someone in a position of authority to make a recommendation, that's different from your sister saying maybe you should consider a C-section right now or you know whatever the thing is. So that's sort of like a like an invisible component of it that I think we need to really talk about more is that is that inherent power differential that makes it harder for patients and their loved ones to communicate with the rest of the people in the room does that make sense do you think that makes sense to people
0: I think so. I mean, I'm just seeing so much of it play out in my head because it it's almost, I was just talking to actually Mandy Irby, the birth nurse, you guys, I was just talking to her. We were recording our episode of Pulse Check Podcast and I was telling her, I just got back from a really wonderful birth, but the OB was amazing. She was great. But in a hospital, they can only be so good. And I think that is it, is that a hospital birth, no matter what, will have these underlying kind of things happening because it's in the hospital and it's just part of the culture in the hospital. So when we come across this obstetrical violence, Kristen, we can do something with it. We can report it, right? So let's talk about that. A lot of times, I'm sure so many people out there are rolling their eyes being like, yeah, I reported it and this is my story. So a lot of times we report it and we get this nice email back that says like, thanks for reporting. And that's literally it. Or you get a phone call that's super cold and they say like, okay, we looked into it and it was nothing Buy essentially, or the best is when you get nothing. You take the time to tell this hospital that they traumatized you, they fucked you up, and they're going to respond with absolutely nothing. Talk to us about what it looks like when we report something. Is there repercussions? For these doctors, I know the answer, but I just, am going to leave it to you to share the, share it with people. Bust the bubble. What, what's it look like on the inside? Okay. When you report things.
1: Okay, well, okay. So I'm going to back this up to one of the things that I used to hear so often, which was if things were really this bad, people would report it, right? I don't hear that quite as much anymore, but it used to be like every day where people were arguing with me about, you know, obstetric violence existing or not existing. Mm -hmm. And they would always say, oh, give me a break. If it were really that bad, people would be reporting it and there would be all these lawsuits and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that is like completely a myth. That's just not, that is just not an accurate (laughs) analysis of what's going on. So just to like give you a super general, very, very general kind of an overview when something like this happens, you have you have a few options for reporting. One is to go directly to the hospital and say, this is what happened in your facility. I'm not happy about it. Oh, whatever. I want something done. Another would be to go to the state board that carries the license of the type of provider who you have had a problem with, whether you know a nurse, a midwife, or a doctor. And then another way is to go through our legal system, which would be to bring a lawsuit. From years of doing this, I can tell you that none of those is very effective. I have done a ton of research on medical boards, so that's mostly physicians. And I feel like this is like a whole rabbit hole. The lack of accountability with medical boards is absolutely shocking and i think that people would be so surprised to find out what doctors get away with well, what it's is
0: doctors judging doctors right like the medical board is made up of other physicians and so we are asking physicians to judge their peers and it just doesn't work like that you cannot have something like that these people view themselves as equals and it doesn't work like that there's got to be a board that's made up of a variety of people that know different perspectives and that aren't majority physicians. It, they're a huge issue with that.
1: Yeah. And a lot of it is a lot of these state boards are political appointees. There's not a lot of care paid, like or attention paid to the thoughtful makeup of a board where you'd be like, okay, it makes sense to have, you yes. know, this type of a person and this representative and this whatever. Yes. It's like, okay, we're going to have, you know, six physicians and two hospital administrators and, you know, whatever, somebody else to like break a tie. And they just, they just kind of like essentially police themselves. When you look at the numbers, because every board, I I shouldn't say every board, but the vast majority of state boards produce annual reports. And when you look at the numbers of the complaints that are filed, versus the disciplinary actions that are ultimately taken by the board, it's usually in, it's like in the single digits of percentage points. It's really, you know, and that alone doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it does when you start breaking it down and you start looking into, you know, what kinds of things are people reporting? What is the investigatory process like? Who's doing the investigating? Who gets to be heard who who can be heard as witnesses like what evidence can you bring and when you start breaking down all these pieces it's just like oh my god there are just so many gaping cracks of where things can, can really easily fall through so you know you get a place like california where you have 10 or 11,000 complaints filed in one year and about 1% of those gets disciplinary action taken yeah So that I think is the most accessible for people like that, to me, that is the, that avenue is the one that makes the most sense. Like that, that there should be a state board. It is a state board. It is not a professional board, but it should be representing the people, right? It should be about protecting the public. And that unfortunately is really dysfunctional in the majority of places.
0: That means on those boards, the public has to be present. It makes no sense to have a board that's representing the public. And there are no actual patients on that board. Yeah, Or there might be, but they don't have
1: voting rights or, you know, I mean, every state is different, but there's no place where there's a majority of patients or patient representatives or patient advocates making decisions about the people who are serving the public in a medical capacity. That doesn't happen. But there's work being done on that. So then the so then the other avenue I mentioned was complaining directly to the hospital. And the best way I can describe that is, you know, it's a it's a complaint, it's a customer service like complaint issue like anywhere else. If you went to the mall and you Slipped and fell, and you went to them and said, Hey, you had water on the floor, and I slipped and fell, and you completely left it up to them to decide how they were going to respond to you. Do you think they're going to say, My goodness, I can't believe we did that. We are 100% at fault. Here's $500 for your broken leg. And every time you come back here after this, please let us know you're coming and we'll give you VIP treatment. Or are they going to be like, "Mm, You probably should have watched your step by because why would they admit fault and help you out if they don't have to if you don't have any way to enforce that on them now in like the slip and fall example you might have another way to enforce that on them which would be by filing a lawsuit right but it's really hard to file a lawsuit in with medical malpractice and specifically with birth injury and trauma cases, really hard. The very first barrier is just finding a lawyer who understands the issues because birth is different from most medical malpractice. And it's almost a you have to get somebody to represent you who understands that, who is willing to be educated about it or to educate themselves, who probably is willing to work with experts in, you know, experts in that field and be sort of like humble enough and like smart enough to acknowledge that they need, you know, additional expertise. And that's like a really, that's a really hard thing to find. If you look at the bigger picture of medical malpractice, you know, the vast majority of med mal, there's never a lawsuit brought. The vast majority of medical malpractice just sits on the shoulders of the public it's like an older lady at home taking care of her own mother who you know had had some preventable adverse event in a hospital that the hospital won't, you know, admit to. And she's stuck at home caring for this, caring for her mother for the rest of her life. That's where most med mal actually lives as far as, you know, like the long-term consequences. And that's another thing where there's this sort of myth that it's so easy to bring lawsuits. It's so easy to sue people. And that's Absolutely not the case, and of course it it depends state to state. But I mean, like just off the top of my head, I can tell you California has a two hundred fifty thousand dollars cap on these kinds of cases, medical cases. So any so any lawyer who's going to be helping you out, their your award is going to be capped at two hundred fifty thousand dollars no matter what. So there, that lawyer is going to be doing that analysis in their head of like, is this worth me doing which in a lot a lot of times comes down to how easy is this case is this a slam dunk can I get in there get our get our payout and and get this through the system and out because if it's a more complicated case like why would they do it they don't have to there's you know 100 people behind you lined up looking for a lawyer yeah it's a really and and it's also a traumatic process Yeah, you've the whole thing is people questioning your story. Yeah. Calling you a liar or crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That really puts, you know, patients, consumers in a really hard spot. It's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And there's literally... (laughs) And not anyone on your side. There's no one on your side. There's no one there to fight for you except, you know, lawyers and to go through the court system, which is going to be draining time-wise, emotionally, hard on your family, financially. There's just so many um, cons to that that I think a lot of people, it's going to stop them from actually going through that 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 route. So, man, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a well awesome conversation. I think a lot of people probably know that, that there is obstetrical violence out there and that trauma happens during birth, but I think a lot of people don't get this inside look. So if they wanted to learn more, can you share your Instagram, or your website, where can people find you and connect with you if they wanted to learn more about that?
1: So my website is birthmonopoly.com. I'm on Instagram at the same, you know, slash birthmonopoly and on my website at birthmonopoly.com slash obstetric dash violence, there's a whole resource page, including an international map where people have submitted their own stories of either experiencing or witnessing obstetric violence. So there's some real, real stories there. And your audience is welcome to submit there as well.
0: That's amazing. That's my favorite resource of Chris you guys is that obstetrical violence map. I share it probably one time a day, at least actually all the time. I always I share it with so many people, whether it be people sharing their story with me and me saying you need to report this here or it be people looking to how to share their story, whether it be anonymous or they're okay being named. That is it. I mean, we just have Mm -hmm. so many people who are asking for this or it could be someone who we've supported and we're encouraging them to submit whatever they have experienced. So, all right, you guys, we will see you next time on the next episode of the Birth Knowledge Podcast. Until then, take care. Bye. See